artist Ike White was a musical prodigy, but his talent seemed to be both a blessing and a curse. He spent time in prison in the 1970s, recorded a successful album there that got the thumbs up from musicians like Stevie Wonder, and he was on the road to stardom until he disappeared. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Joining me by phone is Vivian Perry. The Fordham alum produced the documentary, The Change in Times of Ike White. In it, she helps to unravel the mystery of the real Ike White. Thanks for coming on Fordham Conversations, Vivian. Thank you for having me, Robin. How did you first hear about Ike White and how did you get attracted to the story? Um, Well, what happened was I had a friend who's a really avid record collector and he had decided he was going to put together a compilation of music made in prisons. Um, And he passed this compilation to me and he was like, you know, you should listen to this. Um, There might be some stuff you like. And I listened to it and a lot of the tracks were fine. Um, Some of them were, you know, sort of, you know, these were amateur guys who were making music, so some of them were okay. And then there was this one standout track um, that was just haunting and spoke to me. And it was, the, the hook in it was, I've got to change to carry on. And I listened to this track, and then I listened to it some more, and I just, I well, to be honest with you, I became a bit obsessed with it because um, there's a bit of me that's very, a, a bit of a detective, and I just started asking myself, well, who was this guy? And I, obviously I knew he had been in prison. I didn't know why he had been in prison. I didn't know where. And so it was the the, the song really spoke to me. The the I suppose the it was it was a very um, emotional song, and it was clearly something that had been written from the heart. Um, and I just that was the beginning of a very long journey to track down the guy who'd written the song, I Quiet, and to come to understand his story. So, what were the first steps you took in trying to unravel and discover who this guy was that wrote this amazing song? Well, the first steps were that I, um, you know, you sort of automatically go online and. You start, the guy, his name's Ike White. Um, so I started typing it in, and unfortunately, it's a pretty common name. Um, and also, I just couldn't find anything. I couldn't track him down. There was no, there's no obvious, you know, Facebook page or that kind of business that's, that's the sort of the, the tools we use these days to find people. And so then I decided I was going to go through the white pages. Um, I live in London, but I, I went to Fordham and I was sort of, I'm familiar with, I'm familiar with all the sort of, you know, the systems in the, in the US. And so I went methodically through the white pages to try and find this guy. Um, <laughs> and I made a lot of uh, telephone calls to Ike White's, um, which were, uh, initially not that well received you know when you pick up the phone to someone you're like hi is this like white and they're like yeah i might white and then you're like so were you serving time in prison i got a lot of drop phone calls on that um (laughs) it it didn't go down too well um and i left answer phone messages that have probably um come to think of it left a trail of destruction in houses across the states (laughs) where you know um but eventually, um, you know, to cut a long story short, because this happened over a period of 18 months because of the time difference um, and me staying up at night to, to try and make these calls, um, we, we found him online um, at, that we, we 
got in touch with one of the people who had produced him because by this point I was working with um, a really fantastic director called Dan Vernon. Um, we managed to get in touch with one of the guys who had produced the album and he had said that his name had changed to David Maestro. And that then was the, the unlocking, really, of the mystery because with that came... Uh, some incredible uh, promotional footage on YouTube, which was jaw-droppingly sort of uh, different from the music he'd made. The music he'd made was super soul-influenced and really, yeah, really kind of of the time, 1970s soul-infused music. And the stuff he was making under this new guise, David Maestro, was pretty, pretty uh, cheesy and sort of lounge, lounge music, I suppose. But that, that was the thing that then allowed us to find him and eventually um, to get in contact with him and have a, that first conversation with him. But Vivian, I have to back you up because, you know, I know people who hear songs and they like the song and they might purchase the song but something drew you to spend a, a significant amount of time trying to track him down so did you think you were going to do a documentary on this guy or what drew you to him to his music um I think, did I think I was going to do a documentary? I think in the back of my mind, because what, what I did find when I started searching under Ike White were all these rumors, you know, this guy was a gangster, this guy was in prison for tax evasion, no, this guy was in prison for murder, um, no, this guy's hiding out in Hawaii, oh, I saw him in, 19, you know, and so I just, I suppose the the bit of me that, that wants to solve things definitely was drawn to it but the, um and the the documentary maker in me was thinking well the music's amazing i had then discovered that um stevie wonder had referenced him on the liner notes to songs in the key of life and it says something along the lines of every every i quite deserves a chance you need to, you know you need to to give these people hope something like that. And I thought, well, geez, if Stevie Wonder has decided, you know, I mean, that's an incredible seminal album of that time. Stevie Wonder's not going to waste his time on somebody who doesn't have talent. So it's not just me thinking, wow, this guy has a story to tell. He, he clearly almost made it. So what on earth ha happened to him? So it was the music element, which I'm a massive music fan, but it was also, I suppose, just, I, it got under my skin. That, that's all I can say. I was, I was working other jobs at the time. I was producing radio programs. And I now produce films, feature films. Um, so it wasn't like I had a whole pile of time on my hands at all. Um, but it was kind of a compulsion. So when you finally found the right Ike White slash David Maestro, uh, uh, what happened then? Um, <laughs> so then... Um, I had to, I mean, 
I, I, you know, he he was really suspicious about why on earth somebody was getting in touch because what what we found out was that he had been hiding his identity. He hadn't disclosed this other life to people because, you know, at one point it had been his ticket to to fame and it had been the thing that had set him apart from other um, musicians was the the circumstances under which he'd produced the album, but. Fast forward however many years, it was uh, something that was really stigmatizing and was getting in the way of people giving him gigs, getting credit. And so he really didn't initially want to talk. I got on the phone to him and he was like, you haven't told anybody who Ike White is, have you? And, you know, I hadn't. Um, so, the, you know, that, that then was another process of um, building trust, actually, which is, what, what you do when you make a documentary. You have to be clear about who you are and, and, and let people know that you're doing it for the right reasons, especially since what, what turned out was that he'd been, he'd been messed around and had a lot of trauma in his life. Um, and, you know, he was a, quite a suspicious guy, actually. Um, but we agreed to meet, and um, Dan, the director, went and spent a lot of, uh, you know, he was meant to go for a couple of days and do some filming with him. He ended up spending, I think it was about 10 days with him, filming day in, day out. Um, and and that was that was the beginning of the documentary, and that was in 2013, 2014. So quite, and, and the, the, the hunt had started two years previously, 18 months previously. So, yeah, it was, uh, it's been a long process. What's Dan's last name? Dan Vernon. And so he also must have felt this pull, the same pull that you felt from Ike White, to go and and film him he did you know what had happened was dan and i were working on another film um with idris elba and i've got a really clear memory of us sitting in the back of a taxi somewhere in south africa where we were filming in a township and i was telling him about this story and dan's got you know absolutely impeccable taste in music as well and i was telling him about these references and i was like you've got to listen to this song you've got to listen to this song and he heard it and he was like this 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 is amazing, you, you know, we've got to do something. And he's, you know, we were just on this adventure together, really. Um, and, yeah, and he, he spent his own time. He went out there. David was living a very, um, from the outside, a very suburban life, which was completely at odds with the persona he'd built up that I'd come to understand when he was in prison. You know, in prison he'd been this psychedelic um kind of Jimi Hendrix-esque, sly in the family stone kind of rock god. And we, and the place he decided to settle when, when we got in touch with him was in a suburban part of San Diego with picket fences. And from the outside, his house was very, very unassuming, actually. Um, but actually, when you, you went inside the house, it was a kind of psychedelic it was just, it was insane what he'd done with his house inside from the beginning. Yeah, I was saying he's, he, from the documentary that I saw, your documentary, it seemed like he wasn't just a musical artist. He also had played around with clays and and paper and, you know, colors. Yeah, I think he just had to create. I think, the, and I suppose, you know, the, the, the process of, of spending time with him was trying to understand him because, there was 
so there were a lot of reveals actually a lot of things you came to understand about him you know there was was this eternal question about why he changed his name and there was the um the sort of practical reason that i just you know sort of mentioned that he he had to to get jobs but i think also he was trying to reinvent himself and get away from the person he was as well for a for a kind of psychological reason the, and he and what we would come to discover was that he had changed his name many many times and had many many different um, sort of uh, names and lives, but the one thread that seemed to run all the way through his life was this desire to create and this desire to make things, and that seems to be in contrast to the life he'd had in prison, where he'd had a however many foot by foot cell. And no, you know, no outlet except for his guitar, and that he seemed to always then be trying to make up for it on the outside by just creating endlessly. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking by phone with Vivian Perry. The Fordham alum produced the documentary The Changing Times of Ike White. What started as a story about a musical prodigy quickly unraveled into one about a complicated man's attempt to reinvent himself and the mysterious trail of wives, lives, and false identities he left behind. Now, Vivian, I want to back up a little to the circumstances uh, surrounding him going to prison uh, back when he was Ike White before all the name changes. Um, So he was in prison at this time uh, for uh, a murder that he says was an accident. Um, The man who discovered him, you had a reference to Jimi Hendrix, but the man who helped discover him, his musical talents actually had worked with Jimi Hendrix and visited Ike in prison uh, and eventually worked with him to create music. So can you explain what went on around this time when he was first discovered? Yeah, so when he was in prison, um, he'd come from a very, what we what we discovered was he'd come from a very musical family. His dad was a jazz pianist. His, you know, he'd, he'd been, he'd grown up initially in Chicago around music and he'd taken that music into prison and he, he was playing guitar. I think he had a moment where he gave up hope and tried he tried to hang himself in prison and he then was saved by a guard and decided that he would he he could he couldn't give up and that actually he was going to you know he was going to he was going to throw himself into his music and at least he had his music so it saved him in prison um and he got involved in bands and so what ha- the way that the guy who discovered him who's called Jerry Goldstein who's an absolute legend um in in sort of music circles he's you know he's a very well respected manager and sort of quite i sort of infamous i suppose in terms of how many people he's worked with and and the sort of influence he has um ike was playing in bands in prison and they would have and this was in san quentin at the time so i mean it doesn't get much tougher than san quentin he was playing in a prison band and they would have an event um, where the warden's ball, where the prison warden would allow people from the outside to come in 
and they got to see prisoners doing um, doing sort of shows. Um, and I suppose it's really worth giving a moment of pause to think about what a progressive thing that was at that time um, to, to allow prisoners, A, to make music, to perform music, um, to give them that freedom. I mean, that was one of the things that struck me when I, I remember, you know, sort of first coming across the film and thinking about that in contrast to the, you know, the... The, the the role of prisons today in the states and and in the UK and around you know in in various places um, you know this this question of you know whether you go there to reform or to be punished and and you know what prisoners should be allowed and what enables them to change and become useful members of society again or you know functioning members of society and to reduce recidivism as well um, but. So Ike was really lucky because at that time there was a really progressive warden um, in charge in, at San Quentin, a guy called Jerry Enomoto, who was um, also the first um, Japanese uh, prison warden in, in the States ever. Incredible guy I managed to track down. Um, and these, and you know, so they were allowed to perform. And word got to Jerry Goldstein via... Um, via Eric Burden, actually, of War, another sort of really great band that Jerry was managing at the time. Um, and Eric was like, you... Um, and also it got to him, I think, via Alvin Taylor, who's in the documentary, a really fantastic drummer, who also drummed with War and with Stevie Wonder. Um, he, he was told to go and check out, check out Ike, check out his music. And Jerry was just blown away by his talent, um, and then spent a huge amount of time lobbying to be allowed to go into the prison and to record the album in prison, which was, again, unprecedented. I mean, stars had gone in and done recordings. You know, Johnny Cash is a really sort of well-known example of that happening. But for a prisoner to be allowed to do something like this was really, really special. Um, and I think Jerry had to work extremely hard for that to happen. And actually, as a result of that, Ike was moved to a, a lesser security prison in Tehachapi, um, and that's where the recording took place in 1974. So, um, yeah, because in your documentary, yeah. The Changing Times of Ike White, uh, Vivian, Jerry was saying how he had to pretty much bring a full recording studio into the prison and they're thinking hey wait a minute what are you trying to smuggle in here what's going on what are you really doing and he said yeah. he said he had to bribe them with food <laughs> yeah i mean isn't it amazing that's like how basic the things are that can, that's, that's kind of currency i think it's like decent quality food yeah um and he's i mean jerry was i think jerry is a really shrewd guy because you know, it really the, the music was great. It's it really is worth checking out the album. There are some really great cuts on there that have stood up to the test of time. And he he really could have been a, a massive star. And it, you know, in the film, what we did was we got these sort of people to listen to the tracks again. Jerry Goldstein, who hadn't listened to it for years and years and years, um, Greg Erico, the drummer from Sly and the Family Stone, and they were like geez, this really could have been something. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing that was so, I think, um, exciting for the prisoners was they brought these backup singers in 
the Waters uh, sisters, Maxine and Julia, I think it's Julia, and I think that caused a lot of excitement because these, <laughs> these guys were pretty, you know, they were deprived of females. And, right. and they were all young young men, so I think it was altogether a very sort of exciting thing for the, for the prison as well as Ike because it showed showed the guys that things could happen if they tried. And speaking of women, um, Ike was extremely popular, it seemed, uh, 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 with the women, um, not just uh, the backup singers, but in particular with Jerry Goldstein's uh, secretary. Am I correct yeah. in <laughs> saying that? But, uh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, uh, what was what was funny is when, when we first spoke to Ike, Dan and I, and he was telling us these stories about what happened, um, there's definitely a, a question you always have, you know, did that really happen? Did you really seduce your wife over the phone? Because the, the secretary would end up becoming his wife. I mean, he was such a uh, charismatic personality and had such magnetism that he just, I don't know how he did it. And I think Jerry was sort of flabbergasted as well. But, you know, there's definitely always a question. You think, is, it, is this, are we really going to find out that this is the case? And, you know, lo and behold, we find his wife and who by this time, by the time we interviewed her, was very much his ex-wife. Um, and it was absolutely true. And um, there was some incredible, we were very lucky to get the press shots that Jerry had done in the 70s. I mean, just reams and reams of them that he just, thank goodness, kept. Um, and he is a, he's a really good looking guy. <laughs> and uh, he clearly was. A very, a very effective operator as well with ladies, um, because that was not his last wife, um, that ex-wife that we met. And in watching um, your documentary, what I found interesting was, depending on who you spoke with, revealed a different side of him, almost like he was a totally different person. Did you find that when you spoke with various people throughout his life? Yeah, the film is called The Changing Times of Ike White, but, you know, one of the one of the titles we played with was Who is Ike White? Because he changed his name, he changed his identity, and the, the normal thing you do when you, you make a film, when you get to know someone, is you, you get a sense of them and you're able to hold that in, in mind. It's like, okay, they're fundamentally this kind of a person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and this, that he's still on some level, who exactly he, he, he was, who exactly he was, what exactly made him tick still feels like it eludes me a bit. I feel like there's a, there's a central symbol in the film of a butterfly, and I still feel like I'm reaching after a butterfly, trying to completely understand who he is. And I really... The more I think about it, the more it feels to me that that is, in part, maybe not fully, but a, a coping mechanism and a, and a consequence of having been in prison and this this need to be something for somebody, to him having to work out how do I survive in this world, which is so hostile, not only to ex-prisoners, also, you know, that we spend quite a bit of time looking at the the situation that young African-American men faced at that point in time. It's funny, we tracked down a couple of his cellmates, Bruce and Rico, and they talked about it as a sort of generational thing of, of men who, you know, were already on the back foot 
Um, and so I think it's a big survival instinct, but I just wonder what that did to him psychologically to always have to work out who he needed to be for somebody. And, and ultimately, um, I, th- I, think it was, I think it was really exhausting. Yeah, because Ike was in prison uh, during the Attica uprisings, and that yeah. did seem to affect the tone of, at least it seemed to me, to affect the tone of some of his songs, that they were about, you know, overcoming or uh, changing or struggle. Almost yeah. like Gil Scott Heron, you know, he kind of reminded me of him in that in that same vein of music. Yeah, I think I think there was definitely, you know, he... He had his own personal change and overcoming, but also he he understood that he was living in a in a time where hopefully things were going to shift and and he could he could he could speak up and maybe that that could make a difference. I mean, I think ultimately he was a he was a very frustrated man that he he didn't end up where he thought he should be. I think he was, you know, his his wife was very his first wife was very um, perceptive about what it takes to stand on a stage and to put yourself out there as an artist. And that's a lot of courage, but it's also a lot of ego. And I think he was very frustrated that people weren't listening to him, you know, literally not listening to his album by the end. And I want to touch on that a little bit more, Vivian. Jerry Goldstein was lobbying for his music. You had Stevie Wonder giving him the, you know, the thumbs up. What was the beginning of the end of Ike's music career when he was in prison or just getting out of prison around that time before he became yeah. David? Yeah, I think um, the beginning of the end was really, he was almost his own worst enemy because the thing that kept him going and this that sort of indomitable spirit, which has, you know, given him the strength to pick himself up when he had been put in prison. You know, he was like 19 years old and had been given a life sentence. He was given a life sentence for serving for, for murder, for first-degree murder. He thought he was going to die in prison. And, you know, the thing that had kept him going, which was, no, I'm going to make music, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to triumph, was was ultimately that sort of doggedness was also the thing that stopped him from fully taking advantage of those opportunities that actually only come to you one time round, even if you're supremely talented, as he was, which was, you know, Jerry Goldstein was trying to manage him, and he was offered a... He was offered a story of his life, a PBS story of his life when he, on his release, which would have been an incredible launch, you know, into a career, huge exposure. And he was like, no, I have to play myself. And obviously that wasn't going to wash because they needed somebody who was a, a household name. And he just wouldn't back down on that. And he, he was so convinced he was right. But, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't a sort of pragmatic decision that he, that he was making. And... You know, that was the beginning of the end, was actually him not recognizing when he should take take advice and he should work with people rather than sort of plowing his own furrow. And I think it was really interesting, the coming out of prison for him and adjusting to real life when actually he'd grown up in prison and he'd learnt how to survive a prison life, not normal life. That's the unraveling, because I think he just found outside, you know, outside the walls, um, completely uh, just really hard, to, just so hard to navigate. And, and actually, um, he, lo- he lost himself, I think. And, and, and I think Dan would say the same and, and many people who were with him. 
at the time and and not least making up for lost time in terms of you know he was a frustrated young man who wanted to go and sow his wild oats and he certainly did that so vivian what's next for your documentary um well the the great news is that the the film's going to be showing all over the place um we are um it's showing in festivals across europe and also in the u.s um there have been a couple of U.S. showings, and there's an expectation that there will be more. And we're speaking to a U.S. distributor, so you'll definitely be able to see it um, if you're in the States. Um, it's going to be on BBC Arena, uh, which is a really, really well-respected um, documentary strand um, on the BBC next year. And it's also showing with nine European broadcasters, if you <laughs> if you happen to be anywhere between France, Israel, Sweden, uh, it's quite a list. So there's been a really, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted to say that all the the hard work has, has paid off, and people will get to see um, see the film, and they will get to understand, you know, appreciate Ike's talent, and that that feels really great after all this time. So we'll have to keep an eye out for the changing times of Ike White. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on Fordham Conversations, Vivian. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. I'd like to thank my guest, Vivian Perry. Her documentary is The Changing Times of Ike White. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Got a change.